You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis. A warm welcome to my podcast, Money Talk. For Thursday, the 30th of March, each weekday morning, we discuss the top business and finance stories with some of Asia's top fund managers, economists and analysts. In the headlines today, shares of Alibaba soared over 12% in Hong Kong after the company announced a radical breakup with plans to split into six business units. Other Chinese technology groups rallied, with traders interpreting the news as a signal that Beijing's crackdown on the tech sector is nearing an end. Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen has begun a 10-day trip to Latin America with stops in New York City yesterday and Los Angeles later in the week. Whilst in California, she will meet House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and China has threatened it will respond if the meeting goes ahead, saying it will be another provocation that severely violates the One China principle. Tesla founder Elon Musk and a range of experts called on Wednesday for a pause in the development of powerful artificial intelligence systems to allow time to halt what they called a dangerous arms race. In an open letter, which was signed by more than 1,000 people so far, including Mr Musk and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, was prompted by the release of GPT-4 from San Francisco firm OpenAI. The letter stated recent months have seen AI labs locked in an out-of-control race to develop and deploy ever more powerful digital minds that no one, not even their creators, can understand, predict or reliably control. Hong Kong home prices reached a four-month high last month. Secondary home prices in Hong Kong rose 2.2% month-on-month after an increase of 1.1% in January. However, when compared with a year ago, prices were down by 9.8%. On today's programme, my guest will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Chris Lee, senior partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments. With a view from South Korea is Peter Kim, Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street overnight, risk appetites continue to recover from turmoil in the banking sector, sending US stocks higher, ahead of important inflation data on Friday, and also calmer Treasury markets helped stocks. The S&P 500 powered back above 4,000, with all 11 sectors ending in positive territory. The S&P 500 gained 1.4% to end at 4,028, leaving it with gains of 4.9% for the quarter and year-to-date, despite the collapse of three banks during that period. The Dow surged 323 points, or 1%, to close at 32,718. Strong gains in the technology sector helped the Nasdaq rebound after a losing session. The Nasdaq Composite added 1.8% to close at 11,926. And it's seen gains of almost 14% over the past three months as the quarter draws to a close. The Nasdaq 100, which is dominated by mega cap tech stocks, entered a bull market, rising 20% from its December low and on track for its best quarter since 2020. The main indices in Hong Kong jumped higher, led by Alibaba, which ended the day over 12% higher following the announcement of its reorganisation and adding more than 30 billion US dollars to its market value. The Hang Seng was 408 points, or 2.1% stronger at 20,192. 
the tech index saw 2.5%, taking it to the highest level since last February. Other Chinese technology groups rallied, with traders interpreting the news from Alibaba as a sign that Beijing's crackdown on the tech sector was near an end. Shares of Tencent rose 1.8%, Metroan gained 4%, Baidu climbed 1.9% and Guizhou jumped 1.5% in Hong Kong, as investors focused on other technology groups where there was the possibility of a similar restructuring to unlock shareholder value. Elsewhere in the markets, the bond market sell-off lost momentum. The yield on the 10-year Treasury yield was down one basis point at 3.57%. And you can get more details on the latest market movements on my daily blog at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's join our guests. We have with us this Thursday morning, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us is Christopher Lee, who's senior partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments. Morning, Chris. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Andrew. Now, shares of Alibaba, as you heard there, up over 12% in Hong Kong, adding a staggering $34 billion US dollars in market value after the company announced this radical breakup. It's going to split into six business units. The restructuring was announced just a day after the company's founder, Jack Ma, returned to China after an absence of three years to help restore confidence in the private business sector and his presence in China after spending several months abroad strongly suggests that he was involved in the Alibaba restructuring. Um, so, Andrew, investors, shareholders getting very excited about this, not just for Alibaba, but also tech, other technology groups as well believing this is going to unlock shareholder value. What do you think? Do you think it's will? Is it a good idea? Well, first, it is utterly predictable because when the initial attempt, I would say that again, attack on Alibaba, I think it was nearly two and a half years ago, took place, uh, the emphasis was that it was too big and it should be broken up. So now it is broken up. Again, no surprise except, of course, for the timing. The second point I'm afraid this is a little bit pedantic because we always talk about the tech sector. Uh, at the time that uh, the Chinese authorities were having a go, the, the tech sector they were attacking was the application of software to particularly uh, retail and uh, uh, financial services. The tech sector consists of a large number of very different companies, mm. such as Intel, for example, that makes uh, uh, hardware, uh, Microsoft, that uh, is a combination of software and hardware, Apple, which is also a combination of software and hardware, and, and the, 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 the thing goes on. So in other words, the Chinese did not attack their own companies that were making microchips, or like Huawei that was applying both physical uh, components and software to specific applications. So if we say, hey, the tech sector is doing very well, I'll clear my throat and I'll say the tech sector in the sense of the companies that apply software to specific functions. Now, I'm afraid I don't have specific information to find out what's happening to chip-making companies in China following the breakup of the Alibaba. I know it is pedantic, but sorry, it is very important to define what is and what it is not. Mm. Otherwise, you will end up will end up saying that you know, motor cars are now are more than thirty percent composed composed. I'll try that again slowly. Composed of 
microchip and technological equipment. So in a sense, the car industry is part of the tech sector. Well, it isn't. Come on. <laughs> um, Chris, I mean, it seems that potentially here we've got the right outcome. Uh, but maybe for yeah. all the wrong reasons, isn't it? I don't think Beijing did this because they wanted to unlock shareholder value. They did this because they want more control over their companies. And they really don't like these enormous conglomerates and, and, and feel they can control them better if they are broken up. Do you, do you, is that an assessment correct, do you think? Or, or how do you see it? Well, I see this as a classical valuation arbitrage exercise, right? Not from the uh, political point of view in Beijing's uh, kind of like um, thinking process, but more from the uh, private sector, capital market people type uh, uh, playbook. They always have this, uh, you know, theory as we learn from school that the sum of the parts, right, can be either greater or smaller than the parts combined. So what, what Alibaba is betting on is that uh, when they announced it, uh, scheme they are hoping that they can unlock the value but i'm not so sure about that as of now because it all depends on how the markets will react to this because different fund managers and also hedge fund guys will have different valuation on the six different components of uh, alibaba so this is still, I think, uh, uncertain whether they can actually unlock the value because, uh, you know, it all depends on whether or not you believe in the theory of when companies merge together, uh, they could actually create more efficiency and actually enhance um, uh, profitability. But here we're seeing the opposite, that they're trying to break up. But I think they have no choice here that they have to break up uh, whether or not it will create shareholder value or not, because the pressure is coming from Beijing that they must break it up, just like what happened in other sectors before, in the oil sector many, many years ago in the U.S. and also in other sectors. So we've seen this movie before. Mm, I mean, what you're talking about here is what's known as the conglomerate discounts, aren't you, where a company, a very right. large conglomerate like Alibaba, it tends to trade at a discount to the sum of all its component parts. But breaking it up to unlock that value, if it, history isn't really on Alibaba's side, is it? Because JD.com has sort of done that already. Um, and if anything, its conglomerate discount has just widened since it sort of spun off some of its, uh, some of its uh, subsidiaries. Exactly. That's my point, because the markets uh, did not react well to that. And so uh, I am, uh, you know, still a bit uh, skeptic uh, on, on this uh, exercise. But I think, again, to your point, I mean, the process is already in place. They are going to, uh, you know, restructure and I wish them well on the restructuring. Mm, well, be, Andrew, and, this is an interesting think, experiment, isn't it, to see if this works? And uh, Peter, to be also very politically correct, it isn't just uh, the Chinese authorities that got either politically upset or economically upset or a combination of both on uh, tech mega companies. Uh, let's not forget the repeated attacks by the European uh, uh, regulatory authorities on, uh, on Google. Uh, Ditto, of course, with uh, Meta or the old... Uh, 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 Facebook in uh, in the United States, uh, just to mention, too, that the authorities to be have repeatedly said you should break up because uh, too much is too much. 
and uh, they, of course, as uh, as uh, as Christopher indicated, they were not hypocritical enough to say this is going to generate com- additional value for the for the shareholders. It simply is going to break up a company which is too big for its own boots. Do, do you, um, Chris, do you think this is maybe a model now for other tech firms like Tencent, like Baidu, or are they so different? I mean, Tencent, mm-hmm. just too different to Alibaba for, for this to be able to work. But I do wonder if um, particularly maybe governments in other parts of the world as well might be looking at this as a model for how they deal with some of their large tech uh, companies that they feel have just got too big, too dominant and too powerful. Mm-hmm. I, I do think this is a model for better management uh, because as companies become so big that uh, one CEO is, um, I think, uh, too much. Uh, it's just become too much for one CEO to manage such a diverse uh, group of uh, business and companies. We've seen that in the telecom sector. Uh, we've seen that in also the uh, the banking sector. And we've seen that in the oil sector as well. So I think... You know, it's limited by just uh, human capacity. One cannot be doing too many things at the same time. So I do think it is a good thing to do. Whether or not it will actually generate uh, shareholder values, I think depends on whether the individual six um, CEOs can actually um, do well and also, uh, you know, maintain the uh, the, the market positions in their respective uh, sectors. Uh, and it was also um, what was interesting in the statement, these six businesses can go and IPO as well if they want, which I, I assume will get the Hong Kong exchange very excited. But the one thing that was missing um, from the press release, not a word about Ant Group, which really uh, the cancellation of that IPO really kicked all of this off, didn't it? But the, do you think maybe that's now back on track? I, I do think so. So it opens the sort of like a door for Ant to come back. And Ant itself, as you know, it's also, you know, a combination of six or seven different verticals of businesses, right? They have their insurance arm. They have their brokerage. They obviously have their e-commerce and they have all the other verticals, including uh, cloud and other pieces. So uh, I think it is a good way uh, forward. And at least, uh, you know, you look at the regulatory side, we have an agency for regulating the insurance companies. We have an agency regulating the banks and the brokerage uh, industry and also the uh, MPF as a management uh, component. So they they are, I think, uh, doing what uh, is uh, expected by the government. So, uh, again, I think that is a positive development for Ant Financial going forward. Andrew, if we look at the markets overall this quarter, as we come to an end now of the first quarter, it's been pretty good for technology stocks, hasn't it? Taking your point that, of course, there are many different types of technology stocks, but the NASDAQ 100, which is really those big mega caps like Amazon and Alphabet and Microsoft, um, back in a bull market now. It seems that uh, people are falling back in love with technology. Uh, Yes, and here is where I will take a microscope, and I'm sorry, my needle is stuck, and I will talk about technologies, but I will talk them. I would, I would try to say something in the context of defense companies, because the sector that has done spectacularly well in comparison to S&P, not mm. saying in absolute terms, but simply in relative terms, have been practically all the major and minor defense companies in the world. And remember, these are voracious consumers of technology, both in terms of physical technology and in terms of software technology. Uh, so, if one was to be really picky, 
I would like to have uh, a combination of something which is technological and at the same time sells guns. I'm sorry, I'm being incredibly blunt here. <laughs> right. and, the reason, and the reason for that it has been a huge surge of defense spending literally across the world, starting with a war in Ukraine. It has been quietly going on. There are continuous news, if one picks them out, okay, of more and more money being spent on a group of companies that are very close to technology and also, and this is very close to my heart, they are companies that are almost very inelastic vis-a-vis increases in interest rates because they are customers are very inelastic in terms of increases in interest rates because their customers are overwhelmingly governments. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. And um, Christopher, if we, if we look at the market performance this, this quarter, um, and mm-hmm. in particular, you look at the broad indices, um, they've done not mm-hmm. too badly, have they? You, you wouldn't have believed that there's been in that period a banking crisis, but, but are you a believer mm-hmm. um, in, in this return mm-hmm. to technology? I am. And uh, so I think there are still, I think, um, momentum that is uh, supporting this uh, um, bullish market. And uh, so, as we know, Hong Kong has the campaign of Hello Hong Kong. And China is also now very focused on really uh, fulfilling the promise of economic growth of 4 or 5%. And now that COVID is behind us, I think people's uh, expectation is we've got to get back to uh, making money and also uh, producing uh, gains and profits, and hopefully it will drive the economy. And so I do feel optimistic about what's happening in the marketplace. Uh, there's a little bit of hiccup, of, of course, that, the, the SVB situation and also the, uh, the failures of uh, several financial institutions and banks. But that is, that is expected. But overall, I think um, the policymakers are being pragmatic about this, even though it was a little bit slow for us and China in Hong Kong and other places to kind of like, uh, you know, move other distance. But now that we can all travel freely to uh, everywhere, so I do think that uh, tomorrow will be better and then uh, hopefully the rest of the year will be better for us too. Do you, do you think the uh, banking crisis, if crisis is the word, right word for it, has now been contained? We're seeing the volatility in the bond markets, which has sort of almost mm-hmm. moved in correlation with that crisis. The bond market volatility right. seems to have calmed down a bit in the last couple of days or so. Should we be taking that a sign that maybe the worst is over and the regulators and government officials, the U.S. Treasury mm-hmm. have done a good job in getting things under control? I think th- there is a very interesting theory out there that I could share with uh, both uh, you and uh, Andrew here. So we looked at, um, you know, how this, uh, you know, had happened, right? And some people actually describe this as a self-inflicted uh, problem in the United States because I remember a year ago when I came on the show uh, and I talked about the uh, the tariffs on products uh, imposed by the U.S. government are too high, and because ultimately, who's paying for the uh, the, the higher prices? The average uh, person on the street. So because the tariffs are high, and therefore you have inflation, and the Fed has been printing a lot of money, so that added to you know more inflation. And because they needed to fight inflation, so what did they do? They had to hike rates very very aggressively, 475 basis points in one year, and as a result. Higher inflation, higher you know interest rate led to uh, bond prices decline very rapidly, and it led to the failure of several banks. So you know this can all be actually 
prevented if they did not put on such a high tariff uh, rate. And so I, uh, I think that, uh, you know, if people were advising the government officials now, they would advise them to seriously consider reducing the tariffs and also uh, help, I think, uh, reduce inflation and also keep rates under control and provide more stability and lower prices uh, to the average uh, person in the U.S., It's interesting what you say there, Chris, because I put that question to my guests earlier this week that in many ways, this is a Fed crisis. It's been caused by the Fed uh, Fed raising interest rates, what, 500 basis points in just over a year. Um, But I think my guests rather thought that was unfair on the Fed. But it sounds like you you, you rather agree with that, that um, ultimately this is the Fed is the root cause of this. Yes, and also... And and I would add one other point in terms of uh, just the uh, this, um, I think um, stress testing that the uh, uh, regulators and Fed had done was biased on the rate uh, reduction side. They had done stress tests on how banks or the system would react if rates were cut aggressively. But I don't think they did a really nice uh, scenario and stress testing and in uh, scenario analysis on how. Banks could potentially fail if rates were going up too aggressively, too fast. Uh, Peter, let's let's get a couple of things straight. Blaming the Fed for the demise of uh, Credit Suisse is completely irrelevant. Credit Suisse collapsed slowly over a 10-year period through mismanagement, scandals, and uh, and poor overall leadership. It has nothing to do with increases <laughs> in interest rates. It didn't help. Okay, it was the SCVB, okay, uh, the, uh, the Silicon Valley Bank that uh, had the problems by doing, by taking what not to do in managing a bank portfolio and ticking all the box. Okay, mm-hmm. in other words, it was absolutely undiversified in its assets and paid the price. And also, of course, the depositors are poor soul, the depositors, we have to protect them, all of them were massively into non-insured deposits. So you get to pay the price. Actually, in the case of SED, you don't get to pay the price because the government rescued them. Andrew, you remind me of a, you, you remind me of a quote. I can't remember who said it. It might have been Oscar Wilde who asked someone, how did, how did you go bankrupt? And he said, well, slowly at first, but then very quickly. This seems to be exactly what's happened to Credit Suisse, doesn't it, over a long period of time, but then accelerated also, at the end. And also, I just, I just put out a piece which is a little bit boring and repetitive. And it starts by a quip by Voltaire that said the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. And I would say the banking crisis was neither a banking nor a crisis. Hang on. It was a crisis for three banks. Come on. Three mm. banks. Okay. There were the two American banks plus SEV and, uh, and uh, Credit Suisse. Nobody else had a problem. So mm. why do you call it a banking crisis? Also, the Americanization of everything that happens. The Americans have got problems with their banks. This is a global banking crisis. No bank in Asia had the slightest problem. No central bank in Asia had to take extraordinary measures. Actually, for that matter, no banks in Latin America, Dito, had to do the same thing. And mm. even the European Central Bank, it said, all right, there's plenty of liquidity available if you want it. So, Mm. as you say, it was the Fed. So we are all, you know, Sam Goldwyn said, please include me out. 
Okay. But, yeah. Yeah. I think Andrew has a very good point on the uh, Credit Suisse situation. I mean, I do agree with you that the mismanagement there is uh, again shown in the 2014 event that uh, I think you know they were accused by uh, also the authorities for uh, helping Americans to uh, reduce or evade taxes. So that was, I think, you know, something that. Uh, Definitely, I would I would agree with you on that one, Andrew. But I think my my point earlier was that domestically in the U.S., I think for the local banks and the regional players like、uh, Silicon Valley Bank, it failed partly and largely because of the high tariffs and the high inflation and the high interest rates and the speed at which these go up that led to the、uh, demise of Silicon Valley Bank. I think that part I do feel that、uh, the Fed is responsible for that. But for the Credit Suisse one, I do agree with you that、uh, it was not related to the Fed. And also, actually,、uh, Christopher, I would beg to differ. It takes two to tango. For the SVB Bank, okay, you had two components. You had the corporate components, all of which held massively, you know, less than about six percent. Of the deposits of SVB were insurable. In other words, mm. Uh, mm. Uh, 94% of all the deposits were above the quarter of a million.、Mm. Well, if I do that, I know I'm not going to be insured. So why on earth should I possibly claim that、uh, this is something which is systemic, which is whatever you want to call it? So、uh, you know, the, the blaming blaming increases in interest rates on this particular choice by depositors is is almost irrelevant. Okay, these guys were there because the bank was giving them a lot of loans. Perfectly all right. right. And then, then this is this is an undiversified portfolio. And you know what、right. happens with undiversified portfolio? You pay the price. Yeah, the speed at which that deposits are left, you know, SVP was just absolutely. Uh, historic, right? I think、uh, they have a total of 175 billion dollars in deposits, and over a short period of time, 140 billion dollars left. So, I mean, no banks can actually survive that type of、uh, bank run in such、yeah. a short period. I mean, we're in this type of fractional reserve banking system that we run around the world. It is, it is a big confidence trick, isn't it? It does depend upon、uh, confidence remaining with those banks, because no bank can return all your、um, all your assets all at once, all your deposits all at once. Also, Peter, may, may I get off my chest another of my really pet hates because this is so stupidly expressed. Deposits left the banking system. No, they didn't.、Mm. They went from one bank to another. For deposits to leave the banking system on a net-net basis, all the banking system has to reduce its loans. You know, this is really basic one-on-one double-entry bookkeeping. The overwhelming liabilities of banks are deposits. The overwhelming assets of the banks are loans, loans to the public sector and loans to the private sector.、Mm-hmm. Hello, but、well, isn't that isn't that a perfect? It's a It's a perfectly rational behaviour, isn't it? Because if you have your deposits in a bank where you're earning one percent, money market funds are giving you four percent. It's perfectly、yeah. rational, isn't it, to take your deposits out of that and put them into money market funds, which is what's been going no, on. Peter, Peter, hello. Sorry, don't make the same mistake. If I take my money out of a bank, then I simply remit it to another bank. Yeah, yeah. No, no, Andrew. I, I take. I understand that. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. Sorry, what I'm saying. Nothing sa- leaves anything. You no, know, no. I didn't、nothing、say it nothing. leaves the banking system.、Oh. What I said is it goes into a money market fund, which is a perfectly rational response、um, to to where interest rates are. You get four percent in money market funds, so it's not Sorry, really a surprise, that, that, is it? 
No, that's not my peeve hate. My peeve hate is reading continuously in the press that deposits left the banking system. No, mm. they didn't. Well, that's not they what I said, though. I, I agree with you. That's not what I said, that, you know, the, the deposits right. are still there. They haven't disappeared into thin air. They're just in a different part of the banking system. But my point is, and Chris, maybe you, yeah. you, you can have the, the final word. It, it does seem rational, doesn't it, that people will um, consider, you mm-hmm. know, where if you've got a money market fund that earns 4%, you get under 1% in your bank. Um, it shouldn't be a surprise. Maybe should it? reallocate that's right. Yeah, Peter's uh, word is of what I would use too. I mean, they reallocated from one firm like SVP to another firm or to another instrument. And uh, so we saw in the news that uh, B of A, Bank of America, received like $15 billion of uh, deposits yeah. from uh, SVP within a few hours uh, on Thursday of that week. So uh, I think I agree with you that, uh, Andrew, it's not – true to say they left the system they just went from the left pocket to the right pocket thank you andrew final word that to you there was you've, you've done a report called crisis what crisis one paragraph in that that caught my attention says panic actions can't be forgive, forbidden punished or controlled by reasoning and targeted action people have and always will act on beliefs and not facts and you say the current banking crisis contains nothing new, both in terms of causes and in terms of policy recommendations. So it sounds like people are just going to repeat this same mistake over and over again, and we're regularly going to get this type of crisis. Absolutely. And actually, the Congressional Committee in the United States uh, right now, as we talk, okay, had a fabulous conclusion that whichever, whichever we do, okay, uh, we will end up uh, let's say upset. I don't want mm. to use the word that starts with an S. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this this is this is zero novelty in what I say. Okay. We, we had two or eight. We had two or eight, and clearly, we learned nothing from two or eight. Not because I'm intelligent enough to learn things. This is because that's the way people behave. You can't change that. Okay, well, great discussion. Thank you very much for your thoughts there. That's Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Christopher Lee, Senior Partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. I'm joined now by Peter Kim, who is Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities over in Seoul, South Korea. Good morning to you, Peter. Good morning. Welcome back. Thank you very much. So we're ending the first quarter uh, of the year. If, if you look at stock markets um, around the world and look at the broad indices, you would have almost thought nothing's happened. <laughs> you know, the broad indices have done done quite well. But my goodness, what what it's masked underneath, particularly in terms of banking stocks. So I'm interested to get your thoughts, first of all, on the banking crisis. Is that the right word to use? Is it a crisis? Uh, in the old days, it definitely would have been a crisis of some sort that would have uh, left a lasting mark uh, and possibly even skirt with the dangers of a contagion. But um, I think we are living in a different times now for two reasons. Number one is that uh, the governments are so ready, I mean, so ready to step in to avert anything that uh, resembles the previous Lehman crisis. And we've seen that with the the three uh, potential uh, bombs uh, in consecutive days, actually. Uh, And that was very impressive. Um, And I guess the second uh, thing is that um, we have uh, a a lot of uncertainty outside of the monetary policy uh, that informs the geopolitical risk uh, in terms of 
the deglobalization. Uh, and all of that, I think, has put uh, everyone on alert. Uh, so in a way, we've probably benefited uh, from the heightened sense of urgency all around the world since COVID. And I think that uh, is uh, uh, one of the reasons for uh, the readiness of the government stepping in to avert a uh, contagion. Was the government right to do that, though, after the global financial crisis? We're always told that this wouldn't happen again, that governments wouldn't step in. Um, and here we are, you know, they've extended already in the US the deposit insurance. It covered 100% yeah. of the deposits at uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Um, are governments right to do that, or does it just make it more likely that we're going to have another crisis because it increases the moral yep. hazard? Yeah, um, it does re uh, resemble a lot of what we saw from Japan from about 20, 30 years ago, to be honest. Um, if you remember what happened with Japan is that they actually never had a crisis. But uh, with uh, a ballooning of government debt, uh, with the numbing down of the financial sector, they've gone through, you know, what they call now uh, lost decades. And I think uh, 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 the developed economies in particular uh, are in danger of falling into that trap. As far as the, having the right to do something like this or not, I now distinguish uh, between policymakers and politicians. Um, and I think it's a very important distinction because politicians live for the day. Mm. Policymakers have the mandate to try to uh, um, model something that's a little more sustainable uh, over the longer term. And I think what we're seeing now is definitely the ascendancy of politicians over the policymakers. Did you give the policymakers good marks for the way they've stepped in and, and handled this? Um, I think policymakers right now uh, are uh, in rugby terms. Uh, are the fullback just trying to avert that try being scored if you're a rugby person uh, <laughs> rather than the <laughs> ones who go forward trying mm. to uh, win points. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> policymakers on the defense, politicians are, uh, are attacking. Mm. Well, what about in Asia? Uh, you mentioned Japan. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Japanese banks, if you look around the world, who is it that holds uh, the, the largest portion of US Treasury bonds? Well, it's Japan. And a lot of them are stuffed either into the central bank, the Bank of Japan, or into Japanese banks. They've got um, enormous holdings and enormous losses now as well, haven't they? Yeah. Well, um, Japan is just a fascinating case and used to be for its own reasons. Now, how uh, it uh, resembles uh, a lot of uh, what we're observing in other parts of the world. Uh, in essence, what you see from Japan is that they actually basically own the domestic bond market. Uh, they increasingly bigger holders of uh, equities through ETF holdings. Uh, and now I think they have significant influence over the FX market. Uh, now, that sounds very much like China now, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Mm. Probably like it to be so. Um, and I think uh, um, one of the reasons why there is no crisis from Japan is that the government basically bankrolls its financial markets. So there's no uh, undesirable uh, volatility and dislocation. Uh, and I think uh, we are entering into a world of bigger governments having bigger balance sheets. Uh, and using those balance sheets to avert a short-term crisis or maybe a recession. But the cost is, once again, uh, uh, declining long-term growth potential. What about South Korea? And that goes for China too, sorry. 
What about South Korea? Are the banks there sufficiently different uh, to what we're seeing in uh, in the in the US and Europe to to, to sort of ring fence them, or, or do you have like in you have in say um, Germany and the US, all the and Japan, all these regional banks where maybe there are problems that we don't know about? Yeah, I mean uh, we've seen from Switzerland uh, how vulnerable a small economy is. The bigger ones who run a pretty good uh, trade account surplus, uh, like China, like South Korea and Japan can afford to, um, you know, be a little more uh, generous with the uh, government support. Uh, and I think uh, perhaps uh, some of the weaker economies will have to uh, 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 face the music. Uh, but I think uh, uh, I'd like to think that uh, South Korean central bank is different. But uh, in a sense, they deal with the same problems. Uh, they are uh, beholden to uh, ensure that they're not the odd one out to have the first crisis. So um, I don't know whether um, I can say any central bank is different, but, you know, even the most frugal of central banks, Bundesbank, I mean, they're doing the same thing. They've given up on this, uh, this very constrained government debt uh, mm. posture now. So if there is one thing that I would uh, say uh, that has uh, uh, structurally changed through COVID, I must say it must, it's got to be the, uh, the, uh, the socialism uh, spreading. Uh, and alongside that, ballooning of the government debt and government spending. Mm. And what about the markets? I mean, overall, the major indices around the world uh, have done not too badly. But if you look in with, inside that, you've seen a real underperformance in the banking sector, a real outperformance in the technology um, sector. The Nasdaq Composite's up about 14% so far uh, this year. Yeah. As we move into the second quarter, what, what's your thoughts and outlook going forward? Uh, as much as we may uh, perceive the markets to be holding forth on this uh, FOMC stance that there is no rate cuts, I think the market behavior of the past couple of weeks uh, shows us that we are still betting on uh, the uh, capitulation of the central banks by cutting should we start to see uh, excessive uh, slowdown in growth. I really think that that's why I think that the tech sector has uh, rallied. Uh, even though a macro fundamental has deteriorated. Uh, so um, I think that's one. Uh, and I guess second one is that uh, the liquidity overall is still pretty good. Uh, now, mm. the biggest question is, is it good because there's a time lag? Or is it still that fact that uh, despite the uh, uh, higher interest rates, the government spending, fiscal spending is shoring up uh, uh, that the higher interest rate environment. I think that's probably the biggest question. Um, I prefer the explanation that it's a combination of the lag effect and the fiscal spending. Uh, and if one of those starts to bear fruit, I think there is still some uh, downside from this level. And I, and I presume that if the inflation data um, worsens, and we got the, in the US the PCE uh, number, which is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation on mm -hmm. Friday, if, if that picks up, then these market expectations of rate cuts could get upended very quickly. Exactly, exactly. I think uh, uh, we are in a, a fairly tenuous uh, uh, position of uh, uh, expecting the inflation to remain uh, uh, on its downward trend. Uh, as well as no more dislocation in the financial system. Uh, that's probably the uh, only way we can possibly see rate uh, uh, being stable or maybe even a cut. And I think that's uh, probably at this point in the short term uh, too much to ask for.
Peter, thank you very much indeed. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. That's Peter Kim, who is Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities over in South Korea. And thank you very much for listening this morning. Just a reminder that you can find more information about some of the stories we've discussed today on today's programme, along with market updates at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. We're almost at the end of the week. On Friday's programme, I'll be joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Andrew Sullivan, founder of Outset Global. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, director at Statton Advice. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.